Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, our series is called Flexible, and we're talking about how to bend and not break when life isn't fair. And I did sort of feel like doing development for the series that the realization that life isn't fair is sort of universal. So I didn't really feel like I needed to do a whole lot of work to set that up. I sort of feel like all of us coming into this room, we all have many, many examples of the way that life isn't fair, even currently, even right now in our situation. My wife and I have chuckled a little bit this last week because even across the the period of the last seven days, we've experienced multiple things that we didn't go looking for, but they were sort of unfair and we had to deal with it. So I think everybody pretty much kind of gets that that's the case. What is not universal, or maybe what's more difficult to determine is, why do some people sort of bounce back from unfairness? Why, why are they more resilient than some of the rest of us who tend to sort of have like a little breakdown when life is unfair? And I told you last week, the reason I'm doing this series is because I need it. Um, I figured if I'm going to study something for a month, I want to study something that I, I need in an area where I need to develop, and I want to develop more resilience. I want to do better at bouncing back when life isn't fair. Uh, and so that's why we're exploring this these four weeks. You're just kind of along for the ride. I hope that's okay. Last week, I asked a really important question. That is, how much unfairness can you take before you break, before you have sort of like a little breakdown? And we talked about what it, uh, an unfairness breakdown looks like. We said, first, we tend to get distracted by unfairness. It takes us away from our purpose. And being successful in life only happens when we are glued to our purpose. We have to be consistently in line with our purpose if we're ever going to experience success in life. But often, unfairness sort of catches us off guard, and it's sort of disturbing to us, and it sort of takes us off the track of our purpose. And then we said we tend to get absorbed by it, meaning that the rest of the world just kind of melts away, and then all we see, all we focus on is that unfairness. And it can sort of become a cause. And then when it becomes a cause, that third stage hits where we said it was derailment. It either means you sort of uh, lose your temper or worse, you lose your identity. And because it's become a cause in your life, your life becomes about that cause. You're not about what you used to be about. You're about this unfairness that's sort of taken over. And we introduced you last week to a character named Joseph. He's in the Old Testament. And what we said about Joseph is that probably other than Jesus, he is most qualified in the scripture to teach us about resilience because more than any other Bible character, he went through these major setbacks in life and still he seemed to just get promoted right back up to the top. And his life trajectory ended up so high that he ended up being in charge of the most developed nation at that time in the ancient world. So Joseph had an incredible life 
life story full of resilience, and we're trying to learn from that in this uh, series, right? And last week, we said that one of the most important things about Joseph's story was that he had the capacity to perform optimally in a suboptimal situation, right? And and, and just to kind of give you the background of how that works, his situation was suboptimal from day one. We said last week that he was born into a crazy dysfunctional family. His dad had had kids with, uh, by the time he was born, with four different women. And there were all of this, there there was all the sibling rivalry among all of these brothers. And he had 10 older brothers that couldn't stand his guts, primarily because Joseph was daddy's favorite. When, when Joseph was born, his father played favorites, and Joseph was the favorite. And so even though all the old, older boys had had to work really hard as shepherds, when Joseph became of age, when he was 17, his dad literally made him general manager of the operation and sent him out to police his older brothers and to manage his older brothers, which his older brothers didn't particularly like. And they got really ticked off by the fact that whatever they did wrong, Joseph would go back and report to his dad. That was his job, but they didn't really appreciate the way he was doing his job. So they decided they were going to take him out. So what they did, they were where they were shepherding, there was an empty dry well, and they decided that they would put Joseph in the well, they would literally let him die of thirst, then they would make up a story, and they would tell dad that a wild animal had eaten him, and then everything would be back to normal, before they had to deal with this uh, kid that dad's playing favorites with and put on, you know, put over us as a manager, we can go back to managing ourselves and life will be normal again. Problem was... As, as they're waiting for that to happen, here comes a slave train and they go, wait a minute, we could do even better than kill him. We could make a little money off of him. So they haul him up out of that well, sell him to these slave traders. I mean, they literally hand him over to human traffickers. They take a little money for him, not enough to make it worth their while, but they made a little bit of pocket change on it. And they sell him off to these slave traders who take him to Egypt, which keep in mind is a country he's never been to before. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't know the culture. And not only that, but he went from being a pretty, uh, you know, the favored son of a well-to-do family to now he is basically rated as human trash. Whomever is willing to pay the most for him as a slave owns him for the rest of his life, and he is 17. You want to talk about an unfair situation. If anybody ever had a right to just shut down. Because of going through unfairness, it was, it was definitely Joseph. But you remember from our story last week that he ends up working as a slave in the house of a guy named Potiphar. And the Bible tells us that he became a successful man in the house of Potiphar. So we have that contrast, that in a place where we would never expect him to be successful, he becomes successful. He performs optimally in a suboptimal situation. And we made the point last week that there's something to that, that if you need an optimal situation, situation to become successful, you'll probably never get there because none of us have that to deal with. All of us have a situation that is suboptimal in some way. So if we're going to be successful, we're going to have to work within the situation that we have, which is part of what we talked about last week. If you, um, if you missed that message, I would encourage you to go back and, and look over it because we talked about some of the ways that Joseph managed to do that. But I want to go to a little bit different place than we went to in week one because in week one I said, how much unfairness can you take before you break? I want to go to a slightly deeper place by asking, how much unfairness can you take before your integrity breaks? And what I mean by that is, how much unfairness can you take before you start to live short of your character? I mean, you have a sense, don't you, of what's right and wrong? 
my question is, how much unfairness does it take before you feel warranted in crossing the line between right and wrong? Before you feel like you have a right to cross the line and do something that's wrong because after all the situation has been wrong to you? How much does it take before you decide if you can't beat them, join them? If the situation is a mess, then I'm going to be a mess because it's just how it is. Years ago, I was uh, on a ministry trip in Mexico, was flying home from that trip, and I'd been there for the better part of a week. I was tired. I was ready to be home and sleep in my own bed. You know how that is. Those of you who travel, you know you get to that point where you really are just anything you can do to get home. But I had a little concern. When I flew to Mexico, I flew through Houston, and I've never had any problems in Houston. Um, Houston's easy airport to get in and out of. But flying back, I had to fly through Denver. And for me, maybe not for you, but for me, there's some sort of curse that hangs over Denver International Airport. When I get there, something bad is going to happen. They're going to lose something. My flight's going to get canceled. It's going to get delayed, right? Something bad's going to happen. So I'm really a little worried. I'm really wanting to get home, and I'm just waiting for the Denver curse to hit me as I fly in. I come in. I go through customs, just breeze right through, breeze right through getting, my, you know, getting to my gate. Everything seems to be going normally. Our plane's going to leave on time. I mean, there was just no complications. Really excited. And I'm supposed to get into Wichita, I think about 10 o'clock at night, I think is when we were supposed to actually get in. So I get on the plane, it's a pretty uneventful flight, you know, Denver to Wichita is a pretty uneventful flight. And we're coming into Wichita back then, it was Mid-Continent Airport, it still wasn't Eisenhower yet. I can see the lights of West Wichita, I've, you know, been through this a ton of times. They, you know, it's time to descend, they come on, they do the little radio announcement, everybody puts their laptops up, you got to put your seatbelt on and put your seat in the upright position and... And you start to, your stomach starts to do the flippy floppy thing because you're like, you know, going down really quickly. And uh, so I'm expecting, all right, well, we're done. The Denver curse has been lifted, you know. Except as we're coming in, suddenly the plane, you can see the front of it lift up. The nose is pointed up and off to the side. So we were coming down. Now all of a sudden we're doing this number. And I'm thinking something has got to be wrong because you don't land up, you land down, you know. And then the pilot didn't come on for like five minutes to tell us what was going on. And that, let me tell you, that was a stressful five minutes. You know, your mind's playing through all the different things that might be happening that would cause the plane to take off and do something weird like this. Finally, the pilot comes on. And Lord love you if you can understand anything that the pilot says on a plane. When I'm on the plane, it's always like, I can't understand anything. But I did make out that the pilot said there were a couple of lightning strikes by Mid-Continent Airport. So we weren't going to be able to land there and we were diverting. So I thought, well, you know, okay, this is going to be bad, but it's doable. We're going to end up diverted to, I remember as a teenager, I hadn't been diverted in a long time, but as a teenager, I was diverted a couple times on a flight, and usually it was either to Will Rogers Airport in Oklahoma City or BKCI Airport in Kansas City, and I figured that I could either have my wife come drive and pick me up, or I could just get in a rental car and, and head home, wouldn't be a big deal. And then the pilot came on and said, by the way, we are a Denver-based flight crew, and we're over our hours, so we have to go back to Denver. <laughs> That's when I knew the curse was alive and well. <laughs> so we had made it literally from Denver to over Mid-Continent Airport. We did a flyby of Mid-Continent Airport and then went all the way back to Denver International Airport. And let me tell you, when you get off that that little ramp that you walk to get off the plane into Denver International Airport at 1230, 
there is nothing going on. It is a ghost town there. So we knew we weren't getting home that night. So you go to the desk and you ask, okay, well, what are you going to do? And the lady said, you know, are you one of those platinum people, palladium, rhodium people? You know, what kind of status, flight status do you have? I'm like, an, I'm a normal person who's getting really exhausted and you need to get me home really soon. And uh, she said, well, it's Friday. The, this, the fastest flight I can get you on is going to be Monday. She's like, but no worries, we'll put you up in Denver. I said, you don't understand, there's a curse over Denver. There's no telling what's going to happen to me over the next few days while I'm here, you know? And uh, so she's like, well, you can fly standby if you want to. Now, what it means to fly standby is that you stand by and watch a bunch of people get on a plane that you should be getting on, you know? Um, But I didn't really have any choice, so I show up to fly standby, and what happens is your name is on a list, and they keep, you know, putting people on until your name comes up on the list. So the first two flights I didn't get on. Um, the, the third flight, it doesn't look like I'm going to get on either because there's only one seat in question and there's one person in front of me on the list. And I've watched this person all morning. And this person is this close to going nuclear, right? <laughs> they keep getting up and going to the, the stand. All right, so am I getting on this plane? Am I getting on this plane? Right? And then and, and over and over again, the person said, sir, we don't know. We got one seat. We're, we're unclear on whether or not it's going to be open, but we'll, we'll let you know as soon as we know. So it's about six minutes until the end of boarding. They've boarded basically everybody. We're getting close to that time where they're going to have to shut the, the doors about six minutes away. And the guy goes up to the stand and says, well, what's the story? Am I getting on the plane or not? And the, the person said, it doesn't look like you're going to get on the plane. And that's when it happened. I'm pretty sure that was the shot heard around the world. This person hit a tone of voice that was so loud you could hear them all over the airport. And on top of all that, they started cursing. He started making up curse words I'd never heard before. Um, And what the person, the airline attendant probably shouldn't have done this. uh, But once this person started going off on a tirade, that person who worked for the airline looked down at his computer screen and just started typing and almost basically ignored the guy the whole time. And I'm thinking, that ain't gonna help, you know? Um, So he's typing, and finally, about, uh, you know, towards the end of this deal, the guy looks up, the, the airline representative looks up and tries to talk. Well, sir, here's the thing. And the guy says, no, I've had it listening to you guys. I've been listening to you guys all morning. I've been listening to you guys since you got us back from, you know, you flew us to Wichita, you flew us back, I'm on standby, all I do is listen to you guys, and I'm tired of listening to you guys, you guys are going to do something for me, you're going to get me on that plane. And he said, well, what I'm trying to tell you, sir, he's like, I want to talk to your supervisor, I don't want to talk to you anymore, I want to talk to your supervisor, where's your supervisor? And he said, well, my supervisor is at gate 12, but that's on the other side of the concourse. And he's like, I'm going to gate 12. So he grabs his, his roller bag with one hand and makes a not nice gesture with the other hand, and turns around. And when he turns around, his face is like this close to my face. I wasn't like creeping right behind him, but he whipped around so fast that like he's, and all of a sudden his face turns pink. He realized I was there. He didn't, you know how I said that when things are unfair, the whole world around you melts and all you focus on is the thing that's unfair until you realize people are watching you. And he said something to me that I'll never forget, and it's what made me think about it for this sermon. He looked at me through clenched teeth, trying to come up with some explanation. Through clenched teeth, he said, I hate that I had to be that way. I hate that I had to be that way. What he's saying is, my integrity's broken, but it's not my fault, it's the situation's fault. This whole situation made me be short of my character. I don't have any control over that. 
By the way, if you want to know how the story ends, the guy takes off, he's going to gate 12, and uh, the flight person there at the counter says, you're the next standby person, right? And I said, yeah, and he's like, well, here's your ticket, get on the plane. <laughs> and I, I said, well, what about the guy that was here before me? He's like, I kept trying to tell him I cleared the seat for him, but he wouldn't let me talk. Now he's down there, he can get back before we close the doors. Do you want on the plane or not? I took the ticket, I got on the plane, I said a word of prayer. <laughs> Thanking God for this person's temper tantrum. It let me get home faster. <laughs> and yet I can sympathize. How many times have I gotten to the place where I felt like I had a right to do the wrong thing? But there's a reason why that's problematic. See, the Bible tells us that Satan uses unfairness as a tool. He uses unfairness as a, a platform to pitch bad choices. And when I'm saying that Satan uses this as a platform to, to give you a sales pitch for a bad choice, that's just another way of saying temptation. Satan uses unfairness as a platform for temptation. And we know this, whether it's from scripture or from decades of social science research, that when we feel the world is unfair, our resistance to temptation is lowered. So Satan knows that. So he'll go after you when you feel like life is unfair. And he'll do it whether life really is unfair or whether you just perceive that life is unfair. I mean, that's what he did with Eve, right? In the Garden of Eden. Life wasn't unfair, but he really worked hard to create the perception of unfairness. God's trying to keep you under his thumb. God is trying to keep something from you. It's not fair. So you can break the rules because after all, God's not treating you right. I mean, you'll see that all through scripture. But if you really want to see it, just check out the temptation of Jesus in the gospels. You know that when Satan is tempting Jesus, he's going to break out the big guns. This is when he's going to go with whatever his biggest trick is. And notice he does the exact same thing. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness and Satan's coming in. That's not really fair that you haven't had anything to eat. Why don't you command those stones to be made bread so you'll have something to eat? These are the big guns. Satan knows if he can get you at a time when you feel like life is being unfair, that is the time that if he sends the right temptation your way, you can get in big trouble. What he wants you to start saying, the word track that Satan wants you to start telling yourself is, I have a right to do the wrong thing. I have a right to do the wrong thing. The situation made me do it problem with preaching a sermon series like this is that the people who live in the same house with you know that you're preaching a sermon series like this. <laughs> Trying to buy a car for my oldest daughter who it's shocking to me that I'm old enough to have a daughter who's driving age, but that's a whole other thing for another day. But, um, so I'm texting back and forth with a dealer. And again, and I'll talk about this a little later on in the talk, I worked for Honda for years. And so I'm, I'm texting with this dealer about this Honda car. And I know I know more about this car than that dealer does. And the dealer's being snippy with me. So I decide to be snippy back. It just seems fair. It just seems right, you know. So I start texting back to this person to let them know they're not dealing with just any person. I know my stuff, and they're probably going to sell this car to somebody. It's going to break on the side of the road, and then how are they going to feel about that? You know, I'm texting all this, and my wife comes and looks over my shoulder, and she says, just make sure before you send it, it's a flexible text. <laughs> She's right. She's right. That's why I'm doing this series, because I do that. I think to myself, they're being unfair, so I get to be unfair. They're being a pain, so I get to be a pain. How much unfairness can you take before you buy into the idea that the rules don't apply to you because the rules don't apply to the other person? Now, why is this so important? 
It's important because God opens or shuts the doors of opportunity based on our choices. Now, we don't talk an awful lot about that because for some reason in our culture, I mean, you get that America was a place that for a long time, personal responsibility was a theme that went through the fabric of our culture. And yet in the last few decades, for some reason, personal responsibility has become far less important than everybody else's responsibility to me. That's what we're talking about is culture's responsibility to me, society's responsibility to me. But we need to remember that I have an obligation to do what is right for me as well. I have an obligation to myself. What I do has consequences, and those consequences are going to have a lot to say about my future. Not just natural consequences, not just consequences here on earth, but my behavior has a lot to do with whether or not God can open or shut a door. Keep this in mind. God is all about promoting his children. That's his thing. He loves to do it, but he will only promote his child to the next position if he knows they're responsible enough to handle it. I told you I'm, I have a daughter who's old enough to learn how to drive. When, when you were learning how to drive, you knew this, your, whether it was your parents or whether it was your driver's ed instructor, they weren't just going to hand the keys over to you and give you the car. You had to eventually prove that you were responsible enough and able to drive the car before it got handed over to you and you had it on your own. And that's the way that God works. He's not going to hand the keys over to the next situation, the next big thing, if he's not sure that you can handle it. And a lot of times our behavior shows God that I'm not ready to handle the next opportunity. So we get stuck at a place and we wonder, why am I not getting promoted? But God is saying, look at your choices, because your choices impact that. Why was Joseph so successful? Well, Joseph was successful because he was making good choices. Now, somebody in the room would say, now, Jonathan, I don't know whether or not I really buy into the idea that God would make a determination about somebody's future based on the choices that they're making right now. Can I show you a story from the scripture? This is very quick, because I don't want to get too, off the, too far off the beaten path of talking about Joseph. But really quick, I'm I'm going to take you to the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at a story that had to do with King Saul. He was the first king of Israel, and he was set up for success in a lot of ways. This is very early on in his career as king. The Israelites were going to have to fight this much larger people group. It was a very intimidating thing for them to do. This was an opportunity for Saul to solidify his leadership over his people. And whenever the Israelites would go to battle with another people group, the prophet of God would come and offer a sacrifice and a prayer for the battle before they would go fight. It was a sacred thing and it was the prophet's job. But the problem was when Saul waited for the prophet to show up, he didn't show up on time. He was late. It was unfair. And all of Saul's men are starting to get really afraid of this battle that they've got to fight. So he's literally watching some of his guys basically quit. They're not going to they're not going to fight this battle because it's too dangerous. They're right there within uh, viewing distance of the other of, of, of the other army. And, you know, the prophet's not coming and everybody was getting really upset. So finally Saul decides that he's going to offer the sacrifice himself. He literally stepped on the sacred and said, I'm going to do this myself, even though he knew that was the wrong thing. But the reason he did it, it just didn't seem fair to keep waiting for the prophet when the prophet should have already been there. But offering the sacrifice was the wrong thing to do. Look what the prophet said when he finally got there. How foolish You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, and this is what I want you to see, had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Yes, our choices matter when it comes to our future. He said, but because you didn't, now your kingdom must end for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That would be David, by the way. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people. Why? Because you have not kept the Lord's command. Because you did the wrong thing. 
your future has been diminished. I mean, that's a big deal. So why was Joseph a person whose future could never be diminished, no matter how many unfair things he went through? Well, it was because he understood that his choices really mattered, and he was very careful about his choices. That's why the Bible tells us that we need to be very careful how we live. So last week, we left off with Joseph in Potiphar's house, right? And Joseph was very successful. Joseph went from low-level slave to literally running Potiphar's house. Potiphar didn't have to worry about any of the details of the running of his household because Joseph had it completely covered. And that's where we left it. Everything is going good until we get to Genesis 39, verse 6, where the Bible says Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. I think he was well-built because he worked so hard, a lot of physical labor. Um, And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. And I mean, at least you got to give this lady credit for being direct. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. That's pretty straightforward. Now, the word demand here is as accurate as it gets, translation-wise. This is absolutely what it should say, that she demanded this, which also tells you she wasn't trying to start up an affair with Joseph. And sometimes I've heard it taught that way. She wasn't trying to start up an affair with Joseph. Now, he would have said no to that, but it was worse than that. She viewed him as a slave in every sense of the word. If they had paid for him, if they had hired him, not only was he responsible to take care of the household and do whatever Potiphar assigned uh, for him to do, but if she wanted to sleep with him, he had to sleep with her because they owned him. She ordered him to sleep with her. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you. And here's where I'm going to take another little sidetrack, and I probably shouldn't, because I want to keep us on the main highway, but, but really quickly. Do you, do you notice a similarity here between this and the Garden of Eden? In the Garden of Eden, God says you can eat from the fruit of any of the trees in, in the garden, but not this one. I'm going to say no to this one. But it was not okay. The thing that broke this planet, the sin that started us on the trajectory that we're on, started because it was not okay for God to say no to one thing. God had said yes to most things, but he said no to one thing, and that wasn't okay. We live in a culture where God is okay so long as God doesn't say no to anything. So long as God doesn't have a problem with something that I don't have a problem with, then God is fine. But if God says no to something, and I don't think I I see a good reason for God to say no to it, then God's not okay with me. One of the things that made Joseph a successful person is he's saying, look, you know, I've got a lot of opportunity, a lot of wonderful things in my life, but you, you are a no. You're off limits, and I'm okay with that. If you want to be successful in life, you've got to be okay with God saying some things are off limits. And to say, if God says it's a no, it's a no. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against whom? Against God. Now, it's really important because I don't think, I don't think it was lost on him that it would have been a sin against Potiphar. I think he gets that. I think he's very clear about that in this passage. But I think he's taking it to an even deeper place and saying, You don't understand. My relationship with Potiphar is important, but my relationship with God is even more important. I don't know if you ever do this, but maybe when you're talking to somebody in your family or you're talking to your spouse or a friend, do you ever ask the question, are we okay? It's it's a really powerful question because it gets at the heart of, is our relationship in a good place? And what Joseph is saying, I'm not going to sleep with you because if I slept with you, things between me and God wouldn't be okay. I would still be God's child, but the relationship would be in a bad place, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put the relationship between me and God in a bad place just to have this tawdry one-night stand with you. It's not not ever going to happen. She kept putting pressure on Joseph. She was a stalker day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. She was. She's the original stalker. 
and he kept out of her way as much as possible. That's advisable. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak and said, come on, sleep with me. And by the way, the fact that she grabbed him by his cloak is symbolic and it's important. In the ancient time, your clothes were a symbol of your status. When Joseph's dad gave him that coat of many colors or long sleeve coat, we're still not exactly sure what the scripture is saying there. What, the one thing that we do know is it was a sign of status. It said that he was management and not labor. We don't know exactly what Joseph was wearing in Egypt, but we do know this. We do know that it would have differentiated him from all of Potiphar's other servants. It would have been something that said, he's the guy who's running the house because clothes were a sign of status. And they were very important. So it is almost as though when Potiphar's wife grabs his cloak, she's saying, if you want to keep your status, if you want to keep your job, if you want to be in the position that you're in, you will do this. But check this out. Joseph tore himself away. See, the thing was, he wasn't hung up on symbols of status. It wasn't a thing for him. When his brother stripped him of that coat of many colors, he didn't fight over it. And when, when Potiphar's wife basically said, if you want to keep your status, you'll do this, he basically said, I'd rather run out of this house half naked than do something that's going to put me in trouble with God. I'm not going to do it. Take my garment, take my status, whatever you want. And it's important for us to hear because some of us are very hung up on signs of status. We need the word manager on our business card. We need it to say that we work at that company that's highly respected. We need the really nice car. We need the really nice house because we need other people to see that we have status. And yet, the question is, what would happen if somebody blackmailed you for your status and said, you've got to do something that would fall short of your character in order to keep it? I'm scared that too many of us would make that deal. Joseph, the reason that Joseph was so successful is he said, look, I, no deal. You're not going to get my character you're not going to hold it hostage just so I can keep my status in front of people because my status in front of people is a lot less important than my status with God. And only I know about my status with God because that's an inside thing, not an outside thing. He left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave. She was a racist too. My husband has brought... This Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him the whole story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Now I'm going to change translations and I'll tell you why in just a second. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And we're going to come back to that in a second. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. reason I changed translations is there are a couple Bible translations that assume that Potiphar was angry at Joseph. But the original language really doesn't give us that latitude. We just know that he was very angry. I'm going to tell you what my opinion is, and my opinion is shared by some other Bible scholars that I really respect. I think that Potiphar was mostly angry with his wife. That's what I think. See, there's something about being around somebody with incredible character. The more you're around them, the more you realize the character they have, because you can tell they can tell themselves no. 
Delayed gratification is not a problem for them. They're good at self-discipline. They're, they're good at managing things well. And they're extremely trustworthy. And you spend more and more time and you start to see these signs everywhere that they are very responsible. They're very trustworthy. And Potiphar was sure that was the case with Joseph. Elsewise, he would have never had the position that he had. When you're around somebody of low character, well, that leaks as well. And you see little signs of it. Here's what I think. You would have a very, very difficult time convincing me that Joseph is the first person that Potiphar's wife tried to sleep with other than her husband. I just don't think you could get me there. I don't think, I don't think I'm ever going to believe that. And I think that Potiphar understood that his wife was a person of low character, but he couldn't prove it. He just knew that it wasn't right. So I think that when, when she picked, of all people, the most prized servant of his household to do this with, I think it made him so mad. But the thing is, this is a foreigner, and it is a slave, and his wife has publicized this all over the place. So now he's got to do something. He can't just act like it didn't happen, because then that would shame his wife and him, and he's not going to have that. That would damage his position with the Pharaoh. So what he decides to do is put him in prison. But think about this, and this is one of the big reasons why I think he didn't believe his wife. If he really did believe his wife that she did this, what do you think he would have done to Joseph? I think he would have put his lights out like that, right? And there wouldn't have been a person in the world that would have held him responsible for it. It was a foreigner and it was a slave. He could have done that. He could have gotten away with it. The reason he didn't do it is because I don't think he thought Joseph did it. He put him in prison, but not just any prison. If you put your slave in a prison, you would put them in the lowest of the low, the worst prison of the time where the rats were and the just the disgusting prison. Instead, he put Joseph in the king's prison, where, which was mostly for diplomatic prisoners. This was mostly for, um, uh, this was like a medium security prison. And not only that, Bible scholars think that this prison was on Potiphar's land. It's almost as though Potiphar doesn't want to lose this guy so much that he's figured out a way to put him in prison but kind of keep him around. Because he's that kind of guy. You don't want to lose somebody like Joseph. So he puts him in the prison. But what you will notice is that Joseph always gets promoted wherever he is. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. Does that sound familiar? I mean, no matter where Joseph is, he becomes the manager. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, that's where we're going to leave Joseph for now, and we're going to come back to the story next week. What can we take from what we've learned today about Joseph? Well, two things. I think one is, it just is a good reminder that you will be tempted most when life seems unfair. If you're going through a season of unfairness in life, now is when you've got to be really, really careful. Now is when you've really got to be on the lookout because now is when Satan will try to pitch you a really bad choice that could eventually cause God to shut the door to a future that he really wants you to have. So how do you keep your integrity? And that's where I want to land with this because it's obvious that Joseph had a grid for dealing with temptation. When life wasn't fair, he knew how to handle that temptation so that he could be resilient even in the middle of that situation. So 
I just wonder, could we port over Joseph's grid and use it in our everyday life to fight temptation? So that's what I've done. I've just tried to outline what Joseph did. I'm going to give you three points. We're towards the end of the message. So much of this was set up. But if you, have, uh, if you, if you like to take notes, this will be the time. I'm going to give you three things that you can do to really fight back against temptation when life isn't fair. Here's the first thing. The first thing is refuse. Go on record about what you won't do. Look at what Joseph says. He's, he says, um, I'm going to move it here. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Joseph is basically saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it because I decided before I ever ended up in the situation that I wasn't going to do it. You need to first be on record with yourself and then you need to be on record with others. Now, what do I mean like about being on record with yourself? Listen, if you wait for the temptation to come to make a decision about whether or not you're going to give into the temptation, you're going to give into the temptation. That's just how it's going to be. There's a sense in which Joseph had gone into the control room of his life and he had overridden the defaults. See, this, this sin nature that is in me has a lot of defaults that I've got to be careful to override because if I don't override them, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. He went into that control room and he set the dial for sleeping with somebody you're not married to, to know. He set the dial to being involved in, an, in a relationship with somebody that's married, to know. It was already on record. He was on record with himself that these are off limits and I'm not going to do it. And then when he was when, when he was being pressured to do something he had already decided he wasn't going to do, he didn't, just, he, he didn't just back away. He was verbally forward to say, I'm not going to do that. It's a no. I'm burdened for this generation of late teens and early 20-somethings who have so much pressure from every angle to do things that are just not okay. And there's got to be an extent to which we encourage our late teens and early 20s. It's okay to be verbal with your friends and say, no, that violates what I believe is right. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I work a lot with couples. This is, in May, I will have been doing couples coaching for 10 years. And... uh, the percentage of infidelity cases that I work with has gotten higher and higher and higher. One of the things that I'll ask couples when, when there's an infidelity or an, an affair is I'll ask them, well, what were the ground rules in your marriage before this happened? And I get these blank stares. Well, we pretty much know what's right and wrong. Do you? Were you on record about it? Did you discuss what is okay and what's not okay in your marriage? Generally speaking, the answer is always going to be no. You need to be on record about what's okay and what's not okay. My wife and I follow the Billy Graham rules. You ever heard of the Billy Graham rules? Anybody familiar with those? Just a few. I'll introduce you to the Billy Graham rules, apparently. Right, the, the Billy Graham rules, uh, and, and there, I'll just give you a few of them. My wife and I do not ride alone in cars with members of the opposite sex. We don't eat alone with members of the opposite sex. We don't make appointments to hang out alone with members of the opposite sex. You will not find Wendy hanging out alone with some other guy. You will not find me hanging out alone with some other girl. And you say, well, Jonathan, you could do those things and not have an affair, couldn't you? Probably but I don't see the necessity to do those things when by not doing those things, it builds trust in our relationship. And we're on record that even things that are not sinful are off limits so that we don't even get close to doing something that would be sinful or bad, right? So part of it is just being on record. What are the ground rules? Not just for your marriage, but what are the ground rules for your life? What is okay and what is not okay? All right, second thing. The second thing you can do after you refuse, the second thing is to stay away. The Bible says that Joseph did everything that he could to stay out of Potiphar's wife's way. Now, I'm going to give you a sentence 
that I've given to dozens of couples that where there's been an affair and one of them thinks, well, I don't think I can end this affair, or where there's been a porn problem or something like that. And I tell them, look, if you're ever going to tattoo uh, a phrase on your brain cortex, this would be one to do it, that you want to make the right thing easy to do and the wrong thing difficult to do. Make the right thing easy to do and make the wrong thing difficult to do. I know I've mentioned this in a few sermons, but it's heavy on my mind. I need to diet some, right? And yet I go to the store and I buy Coke because I have a thing about Coca-Cola. It's like a long-time love affair. And um, I grab those and I also grab donuts and I grab Swiss rolls and stuff and I bring them home and I say to myself, but I'm not going to eat them. (laughs) And I'm not going to drink the Coke. I just feel comforted by having it around, you know? Um, But you know what happens. You have that stuff around, you're going to eat it. If you have that stuff around, you're going to drink it. Why? Because what you just did is you made the wrong thing easy to do. You don't ever want to do that. The Bible says he kept out of her way as much as possible. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. The things that make the wrong thing easy easy to do. He said, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, Jesus is not encouraging self-amputation. You get that, right? Like, there's some symbolism here, but, but we'll go on. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Well, again, there's a symbolism here. God's not encouraging us to mistreat our bodies. Here's what God is saying. This is what Jesus' point is. If it's your excuse, cut it loose. You may have to take drastic action to get rid of the thing in your life that causes you to get in trouble. There's some people in this room, your smartphone is your excuse. You do stuff you shouldn't do, but you say, well, it's just too easy for me to do stuff I shouldn't do because I have a smartphone. Well, what that means then is you should probably cut it loose. Or maybe it's some other form of technology. Or maybe it's a specific app. Or maybe it's a friend. More and more, I sit across from couples where I'll find out that it's not so much the spouse's behavior, it's the spouse's behavior when they get around a certain group of friends. And if the friends are the excuse, if the friends cause you to get in trouble, then you need to cut the friends loose. And what Jesus is saying is it may be painful. Do you see where the symbolism is coming from? It may be painful to make a drastic choice to cut loose something that normally seems like it adds value to your life. But what it actually does is it makes it easier for you to do the wrong thing. That your life will actually be better if you can live through the pain of cutting loose the thing that's making it difficult for you to do the right thing. And you get on a trajectory where you've made it easier for yourself to do the right thing. If it's your excuse, cut it loose. And then here's the last thing, point three. Run fast, run far. At a certain point, you just got to get away from the temptation as fast as you can. In neuropsychology, one of the most basic phrases that we talk about is that neurons that fire together wire together. The brain is a creature of habit. And whenever we do something over and over again, our brains become specialized in doing that. It's just like when a pianist sits down and plays a very advanced piece like Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue and they play it for a a recital or for a concert, they would tell you that, well, it's almost like it's in my fingers. I don't even think about it anymore. It's just in my fingers. And what's happened is their brain has become specialized at doing something. They don't even think about it anymore. And a lot of us, that's what's happening with our anger getting out of control or that's what's happening with us making bad choices. We've done it so much, it's become a matter of 
of habit. It's second nature. We don't even think about it. But the thing is, the, the fact that neurons that fire together wire together also means that neurons that fire apart wire apart. That's why when you come to that same pianist a year later and ask them to play Rhapsody in Blue for you, they can play little pieces of it. But you can literally hear in their performance the decay of those memories because they've learned new pieces. They've learned new things. And so the old thing is a lot harder to call up and do by second nature. And so what I'm suggesting here is that at some point you run fast and run far away from the habit you've made and do something else. Do anything else. Get out of there. Do something else and say, I'm not going to keep feeding this habit. I'm not going to keep teaching my brain that this is what we do. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to run away. I'm going to run away as fast and far as I can. You see this with Joseph. When she grabs his cloak, Joseph tears himself away, leaves his cloak in her hand, and ran away from the house. It's not just running away from her. Do you notice how far he wants to get away? He doesn't want to just get away from her. He doesn't want to just get away from the room that she's in. He's trying to get as far away from the house as he can. And some of us, we need to get to the point where we feel bad enough about the thing that's messing up our life that we're willing to get as far away as we possibly can, not just a little away from it, and then we're back with it tomorrow, but we need to get as far away as we possibly can. Well, what's the point of this story? And, you know, a lot of you have Bibles where at the beginning of the story, there's a little header or headline or, or, or a heading that says what the story is about. So if I had to write a, a headline about what this story is about, I would put it this way. I would say, Joseph refuses to become a product of his situation. It's an unfair situation, but Joseph refuses to become an unfair person. He refuses to break just because his life isn't fair. I told you before, Satan wants us to walk around saying, I have a right to do the wrong thing. But somehow, Joseph flipped the script. And even in the middle of unfairness, he treated it as, I have a chance to do the right thing. Now, I'm not there yet, just to be honest with you. I don't get cut off by somebody in traffic and sit there basking in the holy joy of my salvation saying, I'm so glad I have a chance to do the right thing, right? I'm not there yet. I want to be there, but I'm not there yet. How did Joseph do this? Because this isn't easy. Let me show you how I think he did it and then we'll be done. One verse, one theme. It's a theme that we're going to come back to all four weeks. We were dealing with it last week. We brought it in this week and then you're going to see it in the last two weeks. And it's this, Genesis 39.2, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, in a sense, probably the most time that we'll spend with this theme, our point is that Joseph was not alone. He wasn't left to fend for himself in the situation. But I'm going to ask you today to take a little different look at this. Because the term Lord here is a special term that we use for God, but it means both God and boss at the same time. So basically what it says is the boss was with Joseph the whole time. When I was working for a Honda dealership toward the end of my time in the automotive industry, uh, I was working really long hours. I was commission only. I was working six days a week, long hours, and I was just getting burnt out. Very, I was just very exhausted. Um, I was a, and again, I was a service advisor. So that's the person that you bring your car to, you tell them what's wrong with it, and they fill out a, a work order, and then they sort of oversee the technicians, make sure the job gets done properly, and, um, and then deliver the car back to you at the end of the, of the experience. Um, but I was really burned out, and I was being less of a customer service person than I should. Now, if somebody got upset with me, I just really kind of would put up a wall. I was, I was just not engaged anymore with providing the great customer service that Honda expected us to give our customers, except 
for a day in the last few months that I was there when a, a rep from American Honda showed up to shadow me. Now, the thing is, American Honda would from time to time see somebody that they thought had potential in a dealership, and they would send somebody out to shadow them and watch them do their job, and potentially, and we, we all kind of knew this is what would happen, potentially, you might get hired on with American Honda. They, you know, you might get called up to the mothership, and then at that point, um, you know, you really, it was a really great job to work for American Honda. So, here's this person, I show up to my job, and this person's going to shadow me all day. Do you think my customer service changed a bit that day? Suddenly, I was Mr. Service Advisor. I was the best service advisor you've ever seen. I was offering to drop people's laundry off at the cleaners. I was, you know, <laughs> taking people's car through the wash multiple times, whatever it took to make them happy, you know. And, and the people that were mad at me were my best friends before I turned them loose, you know. And the reason for it was that the boss was with me. And this was a boss who had the ability to promote me to a new level. See, I think the reason that Joseph was always looking at it as a chance to do the right thing, is he understood that whether he was in the home with his father, whether he was in Potiphar's house as a slave, whether he was in prison, or as we will see um, in the next couple weeks, whether he was running the entire nation of Egypt, he understood that every day was an audition to show God that I can handle responsibility at the next level. That God had a promotion open. He believed that there was no glass ceiling in God's system. That there was always a promotion on the table, but that he had to audition for the next promotion. And so he was ready to do that. That's why he didn't see it as, I have a right to do the wrong thing. He saw it as, I have a chance to do the right thing because I can show God I'm ready for the next promotion. And that's why we see Joseph continually go back to the top. They keep pushing him down and he keeps coming right back up to the top. Imagine what your life would be like if that was the way that you lived your life. And you said, you know what? The other people are irrelevant. The details of the job are irrelevant. What I know is when I get up tomorrow morning, I'm, an, I'm on an audition and I'm showing God I can handle the next promotion. I'm gonna show him that I can be so responsible with what he's given me today that I'm ready for him to give me the next thing tomorrow. I think that could change not only your life, but it could change your workplace and it could potentially change the world when we're flexible and we bend and not break, when life isn't fair. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful group of people that are here this morning. I know that in this room there are so many situations represented, people going through difficult, unfair things. I pray that you will give them uh, a sense of passion for the moment, um, not to become disenfranchised, not to become part of the system, not to become a product of the system, but rather to be what you've called them to be in this moment and to live their character out no matter what it takes. Father, I pray that you would keep us safe from Satan's temptation in these moments and that you would allow us to change the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week. Thanks for being here. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.